Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Doug Lyons, and he'll be answering your questions on the Batten Kill. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Doug a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out that form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or X, we'd sure appreciate it. If you share our podcast, and when you do, use the hashtag Ask about fly fishing and hashtag fly fishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and let other people know about the great show we're having tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Doug Lyons about the Batten Kill. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some of the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit LeesFerryAnglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's LeesFerryAnglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Doug, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Doug's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form. We'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Doug's book, The Fly Fishing Guide to the Batten Kill, courtesy of Stackpole Books. To learn more about Stackpole Books, go to stackpolebooks.com and you can see all the books that they have published on their site there. We're also advertising Doug's book on the homepage of the website tonight in the right-hand column. Just scroll down there and you'll see a link to his book, Fly Fishing Guide to the Batten Kill. Now, here's how you can win Doug's book. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Doug and I talk about during the show. And you must submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage. It's the same text box you can ask questions in during the show. So that's where you go. Now, listen closely, take some notes, pay attention, type fast, and maybe you'll be one the proud winner of uh, Doug's book, Fly Fishing Guide to the Batten Kill. And Doug just updated me this evening that he is personally offering a copy of the book, a signed autographed edition, 
plus a selection of flies that he uses on the bat and kill. So the first person that comes in tonight will win the book autographed with the flies. The second person will get the book. So um, we don't do this often, but Doug's been so kind to offer that. And uh, so that's what's happening here tonight. Our guest tonight is Doug Lyons. Doug began fly fishing in his native state, Massachusetts, at the age of 12. Finding the stock trout of the Bay State somewhat lacking, Doug convinced his non-angling father to take a trip to the Battenkill, which happened in the fall of 1977. Despite a fishless weekend, Doug immediately fell in love with the river. During this time, Doug also helped with early habitat restoration work on a small Cape Cod wild brook trout stream, the Quashnet. This gave Doug a deep appreciation for the role of habitat protection in maintaining quality fisheries. He has been fortunate enough to fish in many of the wonderful waters around the country. His first trip to the Catskills at 15 was magical. Other trips have brought Doug to waters as far west as Washington State and as far south as Old Tort. Doug is currently a board member of the Battenkill Watershed Alliance and is part of a team helping to guide the activities of the Battenkill Home Rivers Initiative, which he helped launch. He is also past vice president and president of the Southwestern Vermont chapter of Trout Unlimited. Doug's work has appeared on the Orvis Fly Fishing blog, Manchester Journal, and Upcountry Magazine. Doug and his wife, Deanna, and their dog, Roscoe, split their time between Maynard, Massachusetts, and their camp in Shushan, New York, a mile from the popular Spring Hole. Doug, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, thanks for having me, Roger. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, and we're excited to have you and talk about uh, a river that never had on the show before, so brand new, and uh, just shows you that, what is it, 13, 17 years now I've been doing this show, there's always something new to talk about, and then sometimes something new to revisit, so uh, this will be fresh for our show tonight, which I, I do appreciate. Well, we've got a bunch of questions tonight. You just finished, or just published, I should say. I know, you know, you may have finished it a while ago. It takes a while to get these books published, but your book, Fly Fishing Guide to the Battenkill. So let's start there. What's, you know, you took the time to write a, a whole book on this river. What is your personal history beyond the introduction we just gave for you? What's your personal history with the river? Sure. So, you know, as you said, you know, I started in 1977, so we don't want to go over too much of that, but... Yeah, I just fell in love with the river and fished it consistently right through my in my youth and through my college years. And really just, you know, one of those places that just brings joy to you. You know, it's very quintessential New England. And as you get to know a, a water, there's so much more than just the fishing that really becomes enjoyable. And I just love the birds and the sounds and the feeling of the water running against your legs really makes for a whole package for me. And then back in the late 90s, really, the river did take a little downturn. There was some concern about the number of fish that were in the river, and there was a definite concern there. And, you know, when that happened, I became very involved with uh, habitat work and finding out what was going on and seeing where I could make a difference. And so the last 20 years has been, you know, of course, fishing, but also immersing myself in trying to, you know, really make a difference in making sure that the river doesn't see that sort of downturn again and that we can pass this resource forward to the next generation and generations as a better place to be where we've been at times. 
Now, um, you said, is there anything in particular that makes it special for you? Sure. I mean, I mean, we all talk about, you know, how nice it's to be on a river, but pretty much any river will do for that. But, there, you know, I'm looking for something more than that for you. Well, I think I'm definitely a fan of wild trout. And so that's only part of it. You don't have a lot of wild trout fisheries here in New England. And so that's a special part of it. And brook trout, of course, are a passion as well. So to be able to fish for wild trout on a, you know, kind of have my home river being a wild trout fishery is very special. And that's what's very important to me. And just the Batten Kill offers so many different types of water. You can be on a little mountain stream in the headwaters. You could be fishing a almost Spring Creek-like water in the midsections down in Sunderland, Vermont, and then you can go to a classic pool ripple-type stream, you know, below Arlington. So you've got a lot of different water that you can fish in just one river. So it has a lot of very unique features to it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Elizabeth Mead wrote in from uh, Falmouth, Massachusetts, and she asked, what was the inspiration for your book? What unique perspective do you provide within the book that make it different from a typical where to fish type book? Sure. So that's a great question. And so really what I am, um, what really inspired me to write the book was a lot of the habitat work that was done leading from the 2000s on up to today and continuing on. I really wanted to document a lot of what happened there because I felt that it was such important work that I didn't want it just to be lost in time. So I wanted to get a lot of that on paper and memorialized. And that was a very important part of the book to me. And I think something like 30% of the book devotes itself to the history as well as the conservation efforts and some of the fishery science that's been put into the river over the years. And even throughout the guide part of the book, you know, I talk a lot about where, where restoration has been done where there might be other opportunities. So hopefully folks that read the book get that feel throughout the whole book. Cool, cool, good. Yeah, that's nice. Not all books do have that kind of detail. And, you know, in going through your book, I realized that a lot of the streams we sometimes take for granted have had a life cycle of their own, (laughs) you know, ups and downs like anything. And today sometimes we due to a lot of people's hard work like yours and others were able to still fish these, whereas they might have been dead and gone if people hadn't put in the time and energy to, you know, on those conservation efforts. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And there's a lot of people that have been involved with um, with doing work on the bat and kill. I guess I kind of view myself as the biggest cheerleader, but there's a lot of people both in state, you know, state and federal government and, TU and some of the watershed groups within the valley that have just done tremendous work. And, you know, people like that that are paying it forward really are going to make a difference for the next generation. And with climate change coming on, we really, there's so much we need to do to make sure that we have the ability to keep these precious resources functional going forward. Yeah, climate change and just more people, less water, or the same water, I should say. Yes, well, you know, there's a lot, you know, it's a multi-use river, so you've got folks that are tubing the river and things like that, that, which is fine, but we need to educate and let folks understand why it's important that we keep wood in the river, 
and also during periods of drought, perhaps not be on the water or water is warm, it may not be right. a great idea to either be floating the river or fishing it, of course. You know, we don't have hoot owl regulations in the east, but we certainly get the word out that if water temperatures creep above 68, that you really shouldn't be fishing. Right, right. Terry in, in Charlton, New York, wrote in, he says, my experience on the kill, I guess the kill is a, a nickname for the batten kill, I think. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Has seen a lot of stockies with fish over 12 inches few and far between. The river is big enough and deep enough to support a decent population of bigger chop, but the number of fish I have caught and released over the years can be counted on one hand. I'm aware that some sections of the stream get pounded and the trout can be extremely wary, but for the seasoned angler, I think the upside-down proportion remains. I've been told that the proliferation of spin fishermen created a reduction in the number of carryover breeding population fish. I'd be interested to hear your assessment. So... Um, I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> sure. So that's a very good question. There's only you know, there's a lot in that, but so I'll try right. to answer it in a in a in a cogent manner. So there is in the New York section is stocked. They do stock, I think, roughly twenty three thousand fish. Vermont is entirely wild. The first seven miles of the Vermont section of the Baden Kill are wild as well. It's only down in the town of Shushan that they begin stocking. And they stock in six or seven discrete locations. They don't float stock, so they, the fish get kind of dumped in off of bridges and things like that. So even even within the areas that are stocked, if you get away from those stocking points, you're going to run into wild fish. In terms of catching big fish on the Baton Kill, you know, we have to be honest. It is a eastern freestone stream. It's not a tailwater, so it's not teeming with huge fish, but... What I can say is that, you know, there's a healthy population of fish over 16 inches to plus 20-plus inches. I think catch and release has had a big role in that. I know that my old friend Ken Cox, he used to, was a biologist in Vermont. Before catch and release came to be in Vermont in 2000, he electroshocked exactly one 18-inch fish in the you know, 17 years that he'd been doing that. After the catch and release was put into place, 20-plus-inch fish are now common in uh, electroshocking surveys. So there's definitely more big fish now, but I'm not going to try to tell anybody that you're going to go out there on any given day and catch 20-inch fish like you might out west. That's just not the way it fishes. Um, right. But they're there, and they can be caught. And uh, it's not easy, but that's part of the challenge of the river, and that's part of the fun. Are there any fly-only sections of the rivers? There are no fly-only sections in New York. The first 4.4 miles is artificial lure only, and then is catch and release. And then when you go below that first 4.4 miles, there's a number of different regulations that are in place, so it's kind of hard to describe that here. And most of the people, especially in Vermont and to a lesser extent in New York, you'll see most people practicing catch and release. You don't see a lot of bait fishermen in Vermont any longer, and that used to be by far the most popular way that people would uh, catch fish, and now you just right. don't see that since it's a no-kill fishery in Vermont. And totally, New York, huh? no-kill. Yeah, it's entirely. So that came into being in 2000, 
and it was a temporary regulation at first, and then people loved it. They saw what keeping fish in the river really did. And so now, you know, there's a realistic chance of catching a 20-inch fish during certain times of the year and under certain conditions. But it's not, you know, I don't want to give the impression that it's a everyday sort of thing. It's not. Yeah, and, a, you know, a 20-inch trout anywhere or almost anywhere in the lower 48 is a nice fish, and they're not easy to come by. <laughs> so anyway, so you got to work for them. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, anything over 12 inches, it's, you know, it's, when we do electroshocking surveys, it's kind of fun when people come and see what the, the biologists have collected. And I, I've had friends come and observe, and we'll kind of play a little guessing game, and they'll start to put, you know, before they put the fish on the measuring board, we'll kind of guess, you know, how big is that? And there's a lot of fish that are laid down on that board that people are, you know, it's a 12-inch fish, and folks are like, oh, that's a 14-inch fish. Uh, and then they measure it, it's like, oh, that's only 12. So, you know, a 12-inch fish is a solid fish, and anything over and above that is wonderful. Yeah, I used to fish with a buddy that had those kinds of measuring skills where all of his fish were at least three to four inches longer than what they oh, actually yeah. were. <laughs> oh, mine, mine are all like that. <laughs> we give him all. I said, come on, Dave, it's not really that long. Measure it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, well, anyway, it, 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 it's kind of interesting yeah. to see, you know. It's, it's like, wow. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Kind of real, yeah. you realize what it takes to grow a fish like that. You know, that's yeah. Yeah. That's why these things are, that's why it's so important to protect these rivers. Well, um, time to take a quick break. But when we come back, I'd like you to kind of dig a little bit deeper into the history of the Batten Kill because it's famous for a number of different reasons. So let's come back, talk about that in just uh, a minute or so. Sure thing. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line deer and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. That's UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Doug Lyons about the Bat and Kill River. If you'd like to ask Doug a question, uh, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, and send it in. We'll try to get it answered on the show tonight. Okay, well, question just came in. Phil McCartney in uh, Kentucky wrote in and says, does the bat and kill experience fishing pressure to an extent that they're, that fishermen are always near each other? Uh, that's a great question, and the answer is I would say by and large no. Uh, mm. There is opportunities up and down the river. It's, you, know, they, you know, I describe about 50 miles of trout water in the bat and kill. And, you know, by and large, you can find water where you can fish on your own most of the season. During the Hendrickson Hatch, you may have a little bit more crowds than usual. But other than that, you can, uh, if you're willing to, you know, put a little distance, distance between where you park your car and where you fish, you will find some privacy. It's not that difficult to do. And uh, I encourage that. Don't just feel like you have to park, you know, 
fish right where you park or if you see other people fishing right there, that's not the only spot where there are fish. Well, you it's know. good to hear, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, if you get a, uh, it's obviously if you come up and visit and you're there for a few days, get a Vermont and New York license, and that opens up a lot more water to you. And then if you start talking about some of the tributaries for small, you know, they're not big fish, but little native brook trout, that adds that many more miles to your fishing opportunities. So the answer is there's space to fish. And if you don't come first couple of weeks in May when it's really getting hammered, you're going to find find water. Right, it's a, right. It's a matter of uh, making a little effort. So, Doug, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world. So uh, tell us, what are you up to? Sure. So um, now that I've got the book out, I'm you know publicizing it a bit, and so that's got me into the show world. So I'm going to be doing a couple of the fly fishing shows, one in Marlboro and one down at Edison, New Jersey. So I'm excited to do a couple presentations in each of those, and I think I'm going to be at the author's booths in those as well. So if anybody's listening and they want to pop in and say hello, no, please do. I'm also working out what I will describe as a small batch fly tying operation where I'm tying flies that are specific to the bat and kill and I'm going to have a, um, a spot to purchase them up in, in Arlington, Vermont and uh, kind of, you know, those, if you see those kiosks where it kind of give, you know, where you can have a free book sort of thing, I'm going to set it up like that with Venmo where you can purchase prepackaged flies that are relevant to what's happening on the river at any given time. And for the most nice. part, they'll be different from what you can. Yeah, so that's, you know, it's keeping me busy during the winter. This is my first winter of retirement, and so it's a good way to uh, keep me out of trouble. <laughs> and by doing <laughs> yeah, this, there you go. By doing this, I can keep myself in good fly tying material as I go forward. It's certainly not nothing that's going to. Uh, I'm looking to make a lot of money on just something to keep me busy and kind of share some of the patterns that are out there that you don't typically see, and you know, for relatively low cost and. Right. should be fun. I'm looking forward to that. You know, so you'll see Harrison patterns, for instance, which you're not going to find elsewhere. Okay, okay. Now, how can people reach you if they'd like to? Yeah, if anybody that wants to reach me, my uh, email address is ddclyons, that's L-Y-O-N-S, and then the numeral one, at AOL.com. Okay. Yeah, one other thing I should mention, you know, when you ask what my fly fishing world is, that I'm also helping to organize the Bad and Kill Fly Fishing Fest, which takes place the first weekend in May. And that's a big celebration of the river. People will get to see what's going on conservation-wise. There will be some fly tying, free fly casting lessons, uh, presentations. I think Tom Rosenbauer might be one of the presenters, and perhaps myself, and uh you know, so there'll be a lot going on, food, music. It's a fun, it's a great time. The friend Bill Bullock with a, an organization called the Arlington Common puts that together and raises money for the river and it keeps people informed and really connects people to what's happening. Nice, nice. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, good, good. Well, thanks for sharing. And um, yeah. yeah, good luck with all your retirement projects. I hear through the grapevine that, you're more busy being retired than you are when you were working. So uh, <laughs> good luck managing your time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's crazy. It's fun. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a fun problem to have, right? So yep. um, so give us some history on the bat and kill because, as I said just before the break, you know, it's known 
historically in the fly fishing world for a number of reasons. So kind of give us a rundown on that, bring us up to date. Sure. So I, like, we can kind of look at it a couple of different ways. I think people probably know that Lee Wolf did a lot of fishing on the uh, Bat and Kill back before World War II, and he actually, uh, that was his favorite stream for uh, for years. And he used to drive up from New York City and camp out and fish the river, mostly in New York. And then he wound up with a camp on the river right in the special regulations area. And his camp is still there. He's obviously no longer there, but the camp is still there. So you can see it. That's about midway through the special regulations area. I did quite a bit of research in the book about when the brown trout were first introduced into the river. And that was very an interesting journey. And I found out that it was the, more than likely it was the Orvis brothers, Charles and Franklin, that brown trout into the Baton Kill in the late 1880s when they stocked uh, what's called Equinox Pond, which is in Manchester, Vermont, and that uh, those fish escaped out of the pond into the river. And that was um, well before the state. I think the state had one experimental stocking in that rough period of time as well. But that was really the first introduction, and, and that was you know, kind of interesting to find out just how early the fish had been in there, that, that uh, the browns had been introduced. Brook trout, as I mentioned, remain a very, very vital part of the fishery. You know, there's in terms of fly tying history, there's two uh, fly fishermen, fly tires, John Atherton, who was a dry fly, who was an artist, and he drew, he developed a series of dry flies based on impressionistic painting. You know, he had his dubbings have multiple different colors in order to affect one, to kind of have one overall color, but gives a lot of life to it. So he uh, had a big contribution to the world of fly fishing, even though he's not terribly well known. And he wrote a book called The Fly and the Fish in the 1950s that was well ahead of time. And then a gentleman by the name of Lou Oatman was one of the first fly tires to develop baitfish imitations. He has a number of different flies that he came up with, I think around 19 or so, and uh, several of which, such as the Battenkill China, and the Shushan Postmaster is specific for the bat and kill. You know, the fish, the river has always been famous as a difficult river, and you know we can talk about that as well. You know why it's a little bit difficult. And Fly Fisherman Magazine was based out of there in the 70s, so you had a lot of very literate people fishing the river as, as well. And of course, Warvis being right there, you've got a tremendous amount of very good stock fly fishermen. And so it's always been kind of a, always I'd say it's always taking kind of a second step to uh, the Beaver, the Capsule Rivers, but it's always been a vital part of what fly fishing is all about. Right, yeah. There are no dams on the river, right? Well, there are. there's actually one mill dam still on the West Branch right in Manchester, Vermont. And then when you go down to New York, there is some power stations that are connected that are set up above waterfalls that do back up the river a little bit, but they're also right by natural waterfalls. There's not going to be any fish moving up above those falls. They're, you know, 30, 40, 50 foot falls. And so there's no oh. migration of, you know, so that until goes into the Hudson. And so there's no striped bass or shad or anything like that that can run all the way up to the Baton Hill. Right. They can, okay. you know, so they're, they're, they're cut off from that. So there's a little bit of, uh, there is some impoundment still well down in the watershed, but for the most part, it's free-flowing. 
Hey, Ted Merchant uh, in Massachusetts wrote in and wanted to know if there's any stretch of the river that you can float, you know, with a canoe, drift boat, anything sure. like that. Yeah, no, canoe is a wonderful uh, tool, I would say, up in the Sunderland Flats area. I think uh, below, there's actually a state federal access on the lower end of what's called Richville Road in Manchester. From there downstream, a canoe is a good tool. You're going to be dealing with downed trees and stuff like that, so it can be a little bit challenging. Uh, but, you know, certainly a canoe can work. Boats are on the river, say Arlington on downstream. I would recommend fishing out of a boat from Shushan, New York on down. And the reason I say that is there's a lot of wading anglers upstream from there, and it's a relatively small river, and to floating a boat through wading anglers, I think, can create some conflict that you don't necessarily want to have happening, you know. It's tough to have okay. a waiting anger of a boat, you know, in a 60-foot-wide river. That can right. make some, uh, that creates challenges. And also, the other, when you go, when you're floating the lower New York River, that doesn't get hit that hard, especially outside of, like, Hendrickson time. So you can be fishing water that isn't being angled all that much, and you can get some surprises down there for sure. Okay, okay. Um, you had mentioned browns and book trout. Are there any rainbow in this fishery? Is, is it all? There are not. There are not. Okay. You know, I think that's an interesting question because in the 50s, Vermont did stock rainbow trout. Actually, I think back in 1882, they tried as well. And they've never taken. I don't know why that is. There are a couple of wild rainbow streams in the area that uh, share a lot of similar chemical makeups, but there's something about the batten kill that rainbows just don't have never took. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Joe, Fog Excuse me? Joe, uh, Joe Fogarty wrote in and asked, has there been a recent fish survey performed this year, 2023, 20, for the New York side of the river? So on the New York side in 2023, there was a fish survey done on Camden Creek, which is a major tributary that flows into the Baton Kill a couple hundred yards above the Spring Hole, which is a popular pool on the river. And can you know, turned up you know wonderful numbers of six to nine ten inch uh, wild browns and brookies really turned up really nice numbers. The last time the main stem was shocked was last year twenty twenty two, and that was done in three different locations. That was very interesting. The if you don't mind me taking a moment, I'll talk about that and sure. I'll tell you, and why it's interesting. One of the sections that was shocked was down in Shushan at a place called Pook's Bridge, and that's one of the areas where a lot of fish get stocked. And this shocking was done in August. I was actually there for that. And despite the fact that they probably put in about 5,000 stocked fish in there, there were only two stocked fish that, they were, that came out of that survey, and the rest were wild, wild brown trout young of the year as well as uh, as well as yearling. I think the biggest fish we got was about 17 inches in there. And we didn't get a lot in that section, not as not nearly as many as we got up in the areas that were that are managed for wild fish. And I thought that was telling. Dodge fish just don't hold over well. And we, uh, you know, we were hopeful that, you know, as New York has really committed to more habitat work throughout the state, but they're doing a lot on the batten kill, and we're hoping that the more they do, that maybe we can expand some of the uh, wild fishing opportunities down in New York. 
So was that where they did uh, the shocking, was that a no-kill section of the river? That was No, that was a section of the river where it opened to, uh, I think you could probably harvest five fish out of that section. That's okay. the section, the pooks that I was talking about. Uh, the furthest area upstream that they shocked was uh, maybe a mile west of the uh, Vermont border. And... I'm going to say that the estimate that they came out of that was about 550 trout per mile in an area of, um, in, a section, in that section of river, which is pretty good. It wasn't, yeah. you know, like, you yeah, know higher was, numbers, but it wasn't bad. What I was asking for was, because a, a lot of those stockfish are easier to catch, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, if people are keeping them, well, that's one reason right. there's not as many fish left, right? But then that's you have just natural attrition, too. Yeah, yeah, but Natural you know, attrition. You know, you'll see folks in there when stock trucks come, and they'll be there for folks fish for a week or two, and then it kind of dies right down. But the fish yeah. just don't hold over. You know, I, yeah, we're kind of getting a little sidetracked here, but you know, I kind of view you know stocking in a river like the Badenkill is kind of just feeding mergansers and eagles and osprey. It's a very <laughs> yeah. efficient. It's a very efficient program for uh, predatory birds. Yeah, yeah. What is the health of the river today? I would say it's very good. Vermont is, in particular, they shock the river every year. And um, we can back up a little bit and talk about back in the late 90s when there was a crash in the number of fish, the state of Vermont went in and did a five-year study and to, to kind of assess what was going on. And there was a section of river that they electroshocked two years in a row and came up with uh, estimates of about 110 fish per mile, which is a very, very small number. And the determination was made that it was really a lot of in-stream overhead cover that was missing, and that was what was keeping the number of fish low. And so then after all this study, habitat was reintroduced to this one particular section of river where they'd been doing these studies and had done a couple of years of electrofishing studies. The year after habitat was introduced, there was a 500% increase in the number of six-inch-plus fish, which mm. is tremendous. And in all the years since, they've continued to shock that section of river as well as one other, and those numbers have gone up since then. You know, they're a year, there's been a couple of years where you've seen averages of a 1,000 trout per mile. It doesn't tend to always be that high, but we've seen really robust numbers some years. Other years, it'll drop off a little bit, but it's never, ever dropped like it was back in the late 90s. So okay. I would say the health of the fishery is pretty good. There's always work to be done, though, uh, you know, sure, to protect sure. it. And yeah, yeah. Now, is the bat and kill a year-round fishery, or are there seasons? Both legally in Vermont, in, in Vermont, in Vermont, it is a seasonal fishery from the second uh, Saturday in April to October 31st. In New York, it is a year-round fishery. The first 4.4 miles are a special regulation, no-kill, artificial lures only, all throughout the year. And below that four-mile special regulation stretch, which is at the Eagleville-covered bridge. From that point downstream, from October 16th until April 1st, it's no-kill artificial lure only, and then from April 1st until October 
15th, it is there's um, you can use bait from that section of river downstream, but there's multiple different zones within that that allow for some okay. of that. Yeah, so you have to look at the regulations. It's a little confusing yeah. and a little, a little confusing to get into that kind of detail here. But yeah. bottom line is, right. fish the, you can fish the New York stretch all year round. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, fishing. Have you give us a tour of those uh, New York and uh, Vermont sections, and give us some tips on how to fish it, what flies to use, strategies and tactics. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Doug Lyons about the bat and kill. If you'd like to ask Doug a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Okay, Doug. So um, I'm assuming you don't need much of a rod. What, what do most people fish? What weight rod do most people fish with on the bat and kill? I think you can large, by and large, you can get away with eight to nine foot five weight okay. to do most of your work. I actually use a nine foot four weight most of the time, but I think a five weight is, would be fine. If you're going to throw streamers or some heavy stuff, then a six weight would probably make sense. But, you know, okay. I think that, you know, the nine-foot length, eight to nine-foot always makes sense. If you're going to smoke right. fish really small water, then you might want to drop the length down a little bit, maybe seven and a half. But, mm-hmm. yeah, nine-foot-five nine will get you, get you do most of your work for you perfectly well. Okay. Is there any need for sinking tip lines or floating line, all you need there? You'll want to sink tip if the river's up during spring runoff. Or, you know, if there's been some heavy rains and the river's up and cloudy and you want to throw some streamers chasing some big fish that might be out on the hunt, that's the one time you might want to sink tip. I'll use that. I use a sinker, sink tip occasionally in, in conditions like that. Just get you down a little deeper and hold your, uh, hold your fly down deeper a little bit more effectively. So you want it, but most of the season uh, floater, even for streamer work, is fine. Okay, okay. So the bat kill flows from Vermont down through New York and then eventually merges with the Hudson, right? Correct. So okay. it comes out of, uh, there's two main branches. There's the east and the west. The west branch comes out of um, Dorset, beautiful little town of Dorset, and that flows southeast uh, towards Manchester. And then the east branch flows generally south out of the town of East Dorset down into Manchester. And the two, uh, these are two very small streams. The west branch has a lot of beaver activity on it, so you've got a lot of beaver dams and such in there, and a lot of little brook trout. The east branch equally has a lot of little brook trout, and occasionally you'll see some brown trout make their way in there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the west branch actually is dammed. There's an old mill dam 
uh, in Manchester, Vermont. So that's actually isolated from the rest of the river, which is kind of an interesting feature. But um, mm. they come together in a wetlands network down uh, kind of behind all the little strip malls and they, they have in Manchester, Vermont, and emerge a couple hundred yards upstream of what's called Union Street. And that's where the Battenkill proper flows. And then from Union Street downstream for several miles, you have what we call the jungle. And that will give you a sense of what the water looks like in there. It's pretty gnarly. Okay. It's a small stream, but a lot of wood in the river, not a lot of development in there. So, you know, if, you're, if you want to fish on your own, if, you know, I wouldn't go in there with a buddy. It's small water, but it's a great spot to go fishing uh, for some quiet water on your own. But it's kind of fast freestony type of river. And then when it emerges out of the jungle in what's called where Richville Road is located, <laughs> you kind of hit what I would call the Sunderland Flats. And that's where you wind up with water that looks an awful lot like a spring creek or a meadow stream. Very slow, very flat. Uh, in some areas there's uh, weed growth and such. So you really, really, it can be very deep, a little tricky to wade in there. It can be a little mucky. But uh, again, and you know, a canoe is a nice tool to fish through there, and so you've got several miles of very slow, flat moving, slow, flat water that's very technical. Okay, that's what I was just going to say. Is is that the, the most challenging stretch of the river? Yeah, you're gonna. That's definitely. Uh, first of all, wading can be tricky in there for sure. There are spots you can do it, but you know, it, it can be a little tricky at places. A lot of mosquitoes. <laughs> In the summer, there's good hatches of trichos in there in the summer. It has all the bugs that you would see elsewhere. You don't really see, you know, you'd expect to see like things like green drakes, but you don't really see them in there. And I don't know why that is, but uh, they, even though it looks like it would be green drake type water, they're not in there. Um, but, you know, how do they, of, yeah, I was going to ask, how do the hatches change as you come down river there? Do they change, or in generally they pretty they do, much the you same? Know, so, so that's, like I said, that that's slow, flat water. It's the ideal water for trichos. Wherever you do have a ripple, you'll get some cat. You'll get caddis, and you'll get the Hendrickson's and the fast water bugs. But there's not as much of that up there, so you won't quite see so much of that. You you will see what are called yellow drakes. They're related to the green drake. You'll see some of those in there. They they hatch in June kind of a big fly and uh, they don't hatch in huge numbers but the fish know they're there so you can kind of want you can fish a uh, cream variant in and around structure and you may get a fish hitting that but yeah that's more and there's a lot there's good blue and dollars in there in the fall and terrestrials of course there's a lot of trees overhanging so ants and things like that are very good and then the river kind of goes continues south into into Arlington and then it takes a very sharp curve to the west right in Arlington. And this is where the river really kind of turns into a classic pool ripple type river. And you'll see all the classic eastern hatches in through there on uh, your Tenderson, Sulphurs, Blooming Dollows, Isonychia, things like that, all the traditional flies. What's the most prolific hatch, do you think? Uh, the most prolific hatch would definitely be the Hendrickson. Hendrickson, and also there's a caddis that hatches at the same time called the Granum caddis. I think you call it the Mother's Day caddis up there in Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And that's, you know, I would say that that's the heaviest hatch 
on the bat and kill year in and year out, and it's certainly very popular. But we get good sulfurs and uh, various different types of mayflies that would be called a quote-unquote sulfur throughout the summer. The Isonychia hatch can be, you know, that there's, that's kind of a two-stage hatch in June and then again in the fall, uh, you know, August, in September. Not really a dry fly hatch, but the stream, the uh, nymphs are very active, and so you can stick a zug bug or a prince in the riffles and strip those real fast. You'll get solid takes. And occasionally, if you want to throw a done variant or something like that in the riffles, you might pick up an occasional fish looking for a big looking for a big fly that might have flopped in the water. Mm -hmm. So those are for some of those. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, you had mentioned earlier flies that you'd be tying would be John Atherton's patterns. Um, yeah. The art, artist and tire, and I noticed in in your book you've got those number of those patterns in there. Sure. I'm assuming those are some of your favorites? Uh, yeah. So, you know, we're talking I'm, about drive? So, you know, when we talk about, you know, I, I think there's a question in there about, you know, how to fish the river, you know, what tips would I offer? And I would mm -hmm. say the number one skill you've got to bring is waiting. And not a lot of, you know, when you go to the fly fishing shows, not a lot of the guys that do presentations talk about this. But my thing is, if you have really good waiting skills, you can get Usually close to the fish, you're not dealing with multiple currents trying to manage drag for a dead drift. So bring your waiting. There's a lot of long. There's a lot of flats on the bat and kill. Long flats where uh, fish will be rising, and um, if you're haphazard in your waiting, you're going to put them down. So become a better waiter, and I think that'll help anybody anywhere. And I think it's an underappreciated skill. So. I think that's far more important than any given pattern that you may want to fish. You know, I fish a lot mm -hmm. of catskill flies, which a lot of folks don't do these days, and I still catch fish. So what makes the Atherton flies different or? Well, they're uh, different in the sense that it's kind of an aesthetic thing, I will say. So if you look at the blend that he uses on the uh, bodies, for instance, like the Atherton number four, I think, uses four different dubbings that they blend together to give kind of a pinkish coral type of hue that's perfect for a Hendrickson. And uh, it's just a very aesthetically pleasing. And he, uh, so mm. visually, they're just pretty flies to look at. And so that, for me, I really enjoy that. It gives me real pleasure to be able to tie something like that and fish it. So it's very traditional and it's just a little bit different. You don't see a lot of folks using them. And so it's kind of fun to have that something different. Everybody's fishing comparadons, maybe the fish aren't seeing these other flies so often, and maybe that'll help. Because if the last five guys drift the comparadons over them, maybe uh, they see something a little different, and they're like, okay, I'll give it a shot. They'll go for that. That's kind of one of my philosophies. For yeah, and I noticed, yeah, he's got a series of dry flies in and, your book, yeah, and then uh, wet flies uh, and some wet flies. Well. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very traditional stuff. There's no question about it. I would say whatever you're comfortable with when you come to the river, you'll do fine. I've never been a fan of having like 10 different flies to imitate one bug because you're, if you're not bringing the fish up, you get so frustrated, all you're doing is changing flies instead of thinking about am I taking it, am I casting to the fish from the right angle. That may make a difference. Sometimes just moving a couple feet it will get you a better drift. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's have, always the... Forget, uh, this is called angling, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, um, you know, there's always that discussion. What's more important, size, shape, color, fly, and yeah. then it comes back to presentation. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, guys that I've interviewed that have done snorkeling and watch the fish and they say those fish take in more crap than you would ever believe down there and spit it back out you know right. so it's more right. about uh, getting the hookup than it is them taking stuff in their mouth sometimes we think they're really picky but they're trying to survive too so well, they, uh, they, gotta they eat have food. to eat yeah. right and yeah and there, I mean there's days that there's going to be that fish that's coming up that you're just not going to catch them no matter what and I don't know and then you go there the next day and you get them on your first cast and say, well, what was the problem yesterday? Uh, yeah, so, yeah. You know, or the buddy that fishes next I'm, to you and is catching fish left and right and you're 10 feet away and can't, you know, can't catch a fish. What's the difference? Roger, you know? I'm always the guy catching the feet fish left and right. Come on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the kidding. other guy. No. <laughs> I'm just, I, I, I can be the other guy quite often, too. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah. You, you can overcomplicate these things. I'm, you know, very much kind of a kiss principle sort of person. Uh, keep it simple. Then, yeah. That's, but other people love it in the other direction, and that's fine, too. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. yeah. Nick in Williamstown, Massachusetts, wrote in and asked, why is the Vetus the, the most interesting and important undervalued hatch on the Batten Kill? Uh, how can we raise awareness of this criminally marginalized mayfly? I don't know. So what's he, what he, I think he said Betisca. Yeah, yeah, Betisca. And, yeah. Um, and if this is the Nick in Williamstown that I think I know, he is a uh, ardent conservationist and a uh, reasonably good angler. And uh, if he's listening, I'm just poking a little fun at him. Um, the Betisca is a... Uh, Mercurial, it's kind of the holy grail of mayflies on the Batten Kill. It's a very funky-looking bug. It's got about a size 16 body and about a size 12 wing. Out on the Osceola in Michigan, they call it the bat fly. It kind of looks like, a little bit like a bat, you know, a little short, stubby body and big wings. And um, Nick, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it was uh, Tom Rosenbauer wrote an article about this fly and you can find it online called an article called The Seventh Cigar Trout. And when I read about this bug, when uh, Tom wrote about that, I became obsessed with it. And uh, mm. it's a really cool bug, and fish will really turn on them. It's a little bit, think of it as a flying ant type, uh, flying ant type thing where you know somewhere, sometime it's going to happen. And if you have the fly ready, and if you have that fly, you're going to catch some really nice fish, but it's mm. not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You know, probably happening somewhere. It and this is a fly that emerges in late May into early mid June, and it's an interesting bug in that it actually crawls out of the river like an isonychia or a stonefly hatches off of rocks, so the dun is almost completely irrelevant. But the, the spinners, just for whatever reason, whether it's just their funky shape, do turn fish on. And if you happen into them, you'll get fish. And what I would say is that if you're fishing, you know, if you're on the river, and not even the bad kill, but I know 
I've seen pictures of these on the Ostable up in uh, up in New York. I'm sure they happen down in the Catskills. If you're not getting any fish, and you know, have a couple of these flies, and I describe them. You know, I have a pattern in my book. And if you're not getting fish at that time of year, late May, early June, you've got risers, and you think you're doing the right thing, maybe throw that on, and that might make a difference. They don't come down by by the thousands or in any, any way, shape, shape or form, they just kind of dribble down late during the late afternoon, early evening, and fish will pick them off. And uh, so that's uh, what he's talking about when he talks about the Betisca. Interesting. Are those hatches few and far between? or? Well, I'm continually learning about these. Like I said, um, I had always thought that they were kind of isolated to the upper river, and now I'm finding that to be anything but true finding them down in New York, variety of different habitats. And, uh, you know, I've got, I was out on the river this past spring, and I've got pictures of rocks that are just covered with these things in a section of river that I hadn't really considered them before. But I know next spring, <laughs> next, next year, I'm putting a couple evenings in, in this one particular spot now that I've seen them, seen them there. So it's just one of those oddities that you come across in fly fishing that are kind of fun to have these things. You know it's out there somewhere, and you might get lucky and run into it. Mm. Yeah, I yeah, see you have a picture picture in your book on page 151 there. Yeah, Photograph, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's then, been done. The spinner actually has a pretty clear wing. Okay. okay. Yeah, I actually I wrote a story about it. Nobody's picked it up yet. <laughs> but I wrote a story <laughs> about it. I wrote a story about it, and it's just, my 15-year obsession with uh, trying to hit this hatch, this spinner fall, and then when it finally came together one night, and it was kind of a, it was just a fun, it was just one of those memorable nights on the river. Yeah. That won't ever leave me. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Yeah, there's some hatches in my memory that will never leave me either. Um, So we kind of let, well, let me take a break. It's that time, and then we'll come back and continue our tours of the Baton Hill. So hang tight. Be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with the restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York and funds uh, projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Doug Lyons about the baton kill. If you'd like to ask Doug a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and uh, fill out that form and send your question our way. Okay, Doug, um, let's see here. We were talking about we're going down the river here, and I think we left off 
somewhere around Arlington or something like that? Sure, absolutely. So yeah. the river, again, so in Arlington, the river takes its turn to the west. And that's a, from Arlington down to, let's say, Eagleville, New York, the river averages about, say, 60 to 80 feet wide, we'll say, I'd say on average. Lots of uh, long flats interspersed with ripples. One feature about the Batten Kill is you don't have a lot of big rocks in the river. You know, don't have big, you know, there's a few, but not a lot of areas where there's big, bouldery pocket water. And so that's why it's, you know, just a little side note, that's why wood is so important in a river like the Batten Kill. Mm-hmm. Um, wood that, the wood that, uh, that's where the fish hold, and, you know, when they're not feeding is in those, in all this wood, these woody debris jams, and that's why wood is such a vital uh, feature of the river. You don't have the big pot, you don't have these pocket water, it's not a pocket water fishery. You have ripples where you're going to hold that, that hold fish, especially kind of like the six to eight inch guys, but, um, and then you'll have these long flats, and, uh, those are the ones that have to be weighted very, very carefully. And so Yeah. And I'm looking at river, some of those some of those runs and, and your pictures and uh just look like glass in places which um it, yes, uh, especially now if you're on the river and say in May, you know, it, the river's got a real push to it. You'll you know it doesn't look it's got a real uh you'll know that you're in a in moving water. Come June, you know, June, July it slows down and a little bit uh more comfortable, but it's, it can be slow, and the fish are going to know you're there if you're not careful. But uh, mm-hmm. so the river really kind of has a very similar feature down through through Eagleville, like I said, and even actually all the way down into into Shushan, where the river starts to get a little bit bigger, and you'll have some. Now, yeah. now are we in? Uh, excuse me, but are, are we in New, New York. York now? We're in New York. I'm yeah. sorry. Okay. So. Um, the Arlington stretch is about seven miles of water before you get out of the New York border. And then, as I mentioned before, there's 4.4 miles of special regulations. And then what you start to see happen is the pools slowly get deeper. You'll start getting some really deep pools down in through some of these stretches of the river, nice overwintering type water. And, uh, again, you'll have uh, plenty of ripples and that sort of stuff, but the pools tend to get a little deeper down toward as you get further into New York. And um, and the bug life will change a little bit. You'll start to see more of the, because there's a more silt buildup, so you'll see some what are called yellow drakes, potamanthus in the summer, and even a few spotty areas you might see some brown drakes. But for the most part, the, the bugs are the same. I think they're a little heavier down, further down. You know, I think there's more bugs a little bit more prolific the further down you get into New York. And I think that's thanks to the influence of the, you know, there's a lot of farming down in that section of the river, a lot of dairy farming. So I think you get some runoff of uh, from the uh, field that kind of enriches the river a little bit. Okay. All right. That's all. And, again, this is, that's the river. As, as the river's getting bigger down there, that would be if, if you've got a, a raft or a boat, those are the areas that I would really concentrate on. Those are the areas where you're, you're going to have some you know, some privacy and you're going to have long stretches of the river where you're not worrying about wading anglers. And, you know, bigger water, is there's not as many fish, but there's opportunities to catch bigger fish down there, I would think. You know, I know that mm-hmm. I think the biggest fish I know of in recent years was caught down along the 
Route 29 section of river in New York, and it was like a nine-pound fish. So there's a few of those mm -hmm. guys that are still in there. <laughs> there always is. There always seem yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I I remember uh, the, um, I first got our drift boat. We went up. It's a hide boat, so we went up to Idaho Falls, picked up the boat and went over, and it's kind of a, its first float was on the Henry's Fork, and where it was kind of a tough place to put the boat in it, but it was just above a, um, you know, a fall uh, cement, you know, impoundment. And mm -hmm. the water was pouring over that, and it was really kind of, foaming up and struck right below that. And we're trying to put the boat in, you know, and concentrating on that. Some guys with a, a spin rod and a spinner was there and getting down deep in that, right below that dam. And he pulled out like a 24-inch brown out of there. And so it's like, and, and the rest of the day was pretty uneventful for us. <laughs> we got to float our new boat, but uh, no big fish. But it just showed you there, there are big fish in there. You just got to yeah. You know, and, yeah, it's uh, interesting. You know, I think we as fly anglers have to understand that we're we're handicapping ourselves by the way we fish. So, oh, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I have a chart in there uh, from when Vermont was doing some studies back. I think it was the seventies, um, and they charted out how what type of methods anglers were using and uh, worm fishermen and spin fishermen, bait fishermen. They were. They were getting all the good. They were getting the fish, the largest number of fish and the largest right. fish for sure. And then you know, yeah. a dry fly guy, a guy like me who fishes a lot of dry flies, you know, we're taking up. You know, we're, you know, we're definitely handicapping ourselves by fishing that way. But you know, it's a little more pleasurable. Yeah, yeah. The, there's there's reasons why we punish ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Mike in Mapleton. Ontario wrote, and he says, I've always wanted to fish the Vattenfield. The browns are legendary. Do you use streamers? I what do. about egg patterns? Uh, and uh, is the fall the time of year to uh, for the big fish? So I do use streamers. I don't use them nearly as much as I use brides, but I do enjoy fishing streamers. Uh, I'm not a terribly sophisticated streamer fisherman. There are a number of anglers up in the area that are far more sophisticated than I am, and they do very well. You know, when the river comes up, one thing I will say is I kind of discourage people from using boats up in Arlington and the upper New York stretches of the river. But when the river comes up over, say, 1,000 CFS and it's tough to wade, I think that that's a great time to use a boat in that section of water with a big streamer and really work that water, and, uh, and you'll do well. And, yes, you can definitely get big fish in that using that method. Is fall the best time of the year for big fish? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've caught plenty of decent-sized fish in the spring. Of course, I'm kind of fishing the hatches, so I think that's some of the early hatches, the bigger fish are coming out of their winter torpor and they're hungry, so they're, you know, happy to come up for bugs. So I often catch decent-sized fish at that time of year. There's definitely fish moving about the system in uh, in the fall. There's been telemetry studies done on the river, and you will have brown trout will migrate 15 miles plus to get to spawning grounds. And mm -hmm. so there's definitely fish moving about, and that typically starts middle of October, 
on average based on those telemetry studies. So yes, there are fish moving about, but I also think that once they get moving and they get into the trib, I think they lose a number of fish from the main stem as they go up into these tributaries. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to catch one that's um, making his way up, then yeah, you could catch a very nice fish. But I don't think you're limited to that by okay. any stretch of the okay. imagination. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, you know, out west here, there's definitely some streams when the rainbows and browns are coming out of the lakes, you know, up to the tributaries running into the lakes. Some mm -hmm. great opportunities for some really large fish. But um, he also asked about egg patterns. Right. I, I I will tell you, I'll be honest, I've never personally used egg patterns. Mm -hmm. um, but what I have seen, interestingly enough, I've seen brown trout laid up five or six feet below brook trout that are spawning. And I don't think that they're there just because they're peeping toms. I think they're there because <laughs> they're, they're waiting for, uh, I think that they're waiting for eggs. So, yeah. Yeah, and then there of course we have suckers that run out and that are in the river and they spawn in the spring, so sucker spawn might make some sense. You know, so I you know, I'd say give it a shot. I certainly wouldn't discourage it. Um, but I don't have any personal experience. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm um Bob Younger in Indianapolis wrote in here on the internet. He says what fly patterns work best on the kill? I'm just flipping through your book and um most most of your patterns are mergers or dry flies. So you get, well, primarily, I right? I've got a dry fly bias, I'm not gonna lie. Um, <laughs> yeah, well I am. Uh, I, that's just yeah. who I am, so you're gonna have that flavor. I will say that yeah. there's a couple of emergers definitely are different. If I had one patterned fish Gosh, that would be tough, but like there's a fly in there called the Vermont caddis, and it's a wonderfully simple fly, and it fishes well on top. It can fish well uh, as an emerger. It can fish gated. I, you know, one of the techniques that people use on the bat and kill to good effect is to skate a caddis in, in the faster water where you just mm -hmm. give them little twitches. And fish will, you know, fish will just slam a little caddis, uh, and that can be a fun way to catch fish. That definitely is a is a go-to pattern. Or there's a fly that's in there called a brown parachute, I think, if I remember correctly. And that basically imitates a rusty spinner. There's always rusty spinners of some size in the river, depending on what's hatching. And um, yeah, you have one yeah. called a rusty parachute spinner. Rusty parachute, that's the one? yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So that's a nice, simple, you know, that'll fish that a lot. You know, you kind of hit hit the banks with that, and even if you don't have rising fish, you may bring something up. You know, just have it in the general size of what's hatching at that time of year. Okay. No, actually, I did a, a very silly experiment a number of years ago. You know, you always read about how oh, there's tons of ants in the drift. You know, and so I actually set up below a couple of spots on the river one day you know, with a little dip net to collect what was coming down the stream. And I captured hardly any ants, but there were a lot of rusty spinners. I think they're just leftovers that are just kind of in the stream at any given time. So mm -hmm. I would say that that's a good searching pattern. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, we do have a question come in on the Internet, too. Uh, 
Arthur and New Hampshire wants to know what are the he says, why are there two spellings for the river, you know, one word or two words? Oh, that's a very good question. So kill, and actually, you know, when I did the book, the bat and kill, my question, you know, did I want to do it as one word or two? And a fellow by the name of John Merwin actually wrote a book about the bat and kill uh, in the early 1990s, I believe, is when it was published. And he used one word, so I honored his spelling. But... I think grammatically, batten, space, kill, with K being the large letter, is probably, the linguist would probably tell you that's correct, because kill is the Dutch word for stream. Okay. So it's a good there's, question. There's, yeah. It's a good yeah, question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, lastly, we're running out of time here, but you did have a, a section in your book on night fishing. So I want to pick your brain on that. Have you talk a little bit about night fishing on the Batten Kill? Sure. Well, first of all, if you're going to night fish on the Kill or any other river, obviously you got to be safe. you got to know where you're playing around. Um, I've done enough of it to know that it's productive. And, um, you know, I generally use a mouse pattern. And I don't know that they think it's a mouse or a frog or what they think it is, but uh, it, it'll work. I like to fish at um, kind of at the top of a, kind of where a ripple's flattening out into a pool and just kind of quartering downstream at various different uh, retrieval speeds. I know of other anglers that have used, you know, large streamers and things like that and have done well, so that's another method that can work, but it can definitely work and it can be fun. I think my favorite time to do it is during the Perseid meteor shower in, in August because I'm on the water. If I'm not catching fish, I have a, uh, a few meteors shooting, uh, shooting through the sky, and that can be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But, yeah, I was going to – have you paid any attention to the moon phases when you're night fishing as to whether um, – you know, I, like, you know, I don't personally – what I'll do is I will – if it's a full moon and I'll go to a, a section of river that's fairly dark, and just kind of fish it where it's darker. I know that that's a uh, that's definitely something that people talk about. But I've caught fish on a full moon, you know, in an open pool. I've uh-huh. caught fish, so I haven't done it that much that I could say that I have a history that would say, yeah, full moon, don't even bother. Yeah. So I'll tell you, the very okay. first time I fished, you know, a pattern like this was, was right after a rainstorm, and there were all sorts of frogs all over the place. And that's why uh-huh. I'm not sure they're not just eating frogs. I mean, there was just frogs hopping all over the road. So I said, all right, I got to go get my rod and get down on the water and fish. Yeah. And you know, caught two fish right away. <laughs> and that's what yeah. turned me on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, frogs are delicious, you know. <laughs> Especially when you're a big brown trout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. One last question. David Cordy in Los Angeles. He says, I want to know what's the strangest or most unusual experience you've had while trout fishing on the batten gill? That's a fun question. And I can relate to a, I can tell a funny story about that. There was a time I was fishing right in Arlington, right at the covered bridge in West Arlington. I'd been trico fishing. You know, there had been a spinner fall and there was a few fish coming up. But upstream from me was this gentleman that was fishing, uh, fishing with uh, spinning equipment. And he was catching literally fish after fish. And nice fish, too. He was putting them back, but uh, 
he was catching just fish after fish. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Why is he catching all these fish? And I looked at a tree, and I noticed in this tree there was a rope hanging off the tree. And then as he got out to leave, he tugged on the rope, and a bait uh, bucket of sort, some sort, he got this bait bucket that he took out. He was essentially chumming worms down into this hole, <laughs> creating a worm hatch, I guess you might say, and just fishing oh. worms into them. And he must have caught half a dozen fish that were over a foot long, and I was just dumbfounded until I saw what he'd been doing. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's yeah. legal. I have not. <laughs> I haven't tried to replicate. I haven't tried to replicate it, but it it was just one of those things. Like holy crow. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, I had a um, experience once. That we have a private lake up here, and um, I was fishing on one side of the lake, and there was this guy I hadn't seen. You, you have to have a with a long story, but you have to have a permit to be on this lake and. But I'm watching this guy over there, and he keeps pulling fish out of fish, you know, out of the lake. And I'm going, God, he's catching a lot of fish. What's he doing with all those fish? So I, I went over there because we kind of, you know, we act as stewards for our lake, you know, find out what what he was up to. But but I went over there, and he was using power bait. Well, you're not supposed to, you know, it's flies and lures only. And he had like seven fish on his stringer, and you're only supposed to keep two. And <laughs> fuck, what are you doing? And I said, he says, oh, I said, you're way over the limit here. And he goes, oh, well, I'm trying to catch a bigger fish. I said, all the fish on your stringer are dead. What are you going to do, release a dead fish? <laughs> so, I mean, it was like, give me a break. Well, I sent him packing, needless to say, and that was uh, probably the last time he ever fished there. But, yeah, I mean, you, you don't know what people are, are going to do. <laughs> That's bucket yeah. chumming. That's a new one. No, that's a, that's yeah, a no, new one. Yeah, no, that was different. I, uh, there was a friend that also <laughs> saw some guys snorkel and uh, snorkeling and using, um, uh, what are they, uh, the underwater, uh, what do they call those, uh, spear fishing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> on, the upper, on the upper on the upper river. Uh, I thought I had dreamt that until I talked to him. I hadn't seen this phone <laughs> in like 20 years. And I said, Gary, do I remember that story? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, so, geez, that's a, so yeah, I mean, if you hang around long enough, you'll see just about anything, it, it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Well, good. Well, we need to wrap things up here and for the night. Uh, give me just a second here. And um, hold on just a second. Okay. Yeah, so... We're going to do a few more things before we finish up. We're going to give away some of our prizes. Uh, we're going to, when I return, we're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, one-year membership to Trout Unlimited, and also we're giving away a copy, two copies of Doug's book, Fly Fishing Guide to Bat and Kill. See, I'm not used to saying two. Both courtesy of Doug Lyons and courtesy of Stackpole Books. So um, that'll be fun. So uh, stick with us for just a few more minutes, and we'll give away those prizes. The Bonefish and Tarpon Trust works very hard to safeguard the future of our beloved flat fisheries from protecting spawning sites threatened by unsustainable fishing pressure to securing historic funding to restore Florida's Everglades and estuaries. Thanks to their members, they've expanded their conservation to the Bahamas, Belize, and Mexico. There's still much more work to be done, and they need your help. With your support, they can ensure that the flats fishery 
is healthy and sustainable now and for generations to come. Visit btt.org and become a member of the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust today. Again, that's btt.org. Just a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage under the section under tonight's show. It says, what did you think of the show? Click on that link. Leave us your comments. We'd really appreciate it. But now it's time to give away the prizes. And the winners for the drawings are randomly selected from a show's registration database. So if you didn't register by now, it's too late. But make sure you do so for the next show so you don't miss on um, winning one of these great prizes. If you are one of the lucky winners, we'll contact you after the show to collect your information and so we can deliver your prize to you. So the first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support. And so if you don't win tonight, do, do that. Join up. So our winner for that is Kevin McIntyre in Oklahoma. Kevin McIntyre in Oklahoma. So congratulations, Kevin. I know you'll enjoy your membership, and uh, thanks for um, for playing. Our next giveaway is a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. To learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org. Again, another fine organization to be supporting. So if you don't win tonight, go there and join up. Our winner for that is Florian Werner in Vermont. Florian Werner in Vermont. So congratulations, Florian. And then lastly, we are going to give away, let me get in the right place. Okay, clear my cue here. Okay, so we're giving away two copies of Doug's book, Fly Fishing Guide to the Bat and Kill. First book can be autographed with a selection of Doug's hand-tied flies for the bat and kill. And um, the second place winner will get a copy of the book, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Unfortunately, it won't be autographed or you won't get the flies. So that's why there's first and second place, I guess. Okay, so anyway. All right, so, um, so I'm not going to make this question too hard tonight. The bat kill... Uh, does have seasons, but if you want to fish in the middle of the winter, um, where do you need to fish? Where do you need to fish if you want to fish in the middle of the winter? So let's see, Doug. Um, if I made that a little vague, but um, let's see if somebody bites on that one. <laughs> All right. Okay, and we have our first winner, Arthur Bienz in North Sandwich, North New Hampshire. Uh, he says New York, and that's what I was looking for. So Arthur, you are the proud winner of the book along with the flies. So congratulations. Now, Arthur, what you're going to have to do is uh, send me your address. I've got your email and your name here. Send me your shipping address so that uh, Doug can send you that uh, an autographed copy of his book and uh, the fly. So congratulations, Arthur. And um, uh, let's see, looking for our second place winner. And looks like we have Greg Greg Weister in Missouri. Greg Weister. So congratulations um, 
for playing, folks. And uh, you too, Greg. You don't have to send me your address. You can use the same form on the homepage that you just answered the question, and we'll get Stackpole to send you out your copy of the book. So great. Um, thanks, everybody, for playing and uh, paying attention and listening tonight. We really appreciate it. I know you'll enjoy your prizes. Doug, we really appreciate you being with us again. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And thanks so much for taking your time out. I know it's late on the East Coast, but uh, thanks so much for being with me tonight. Oh, it was really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, folks, you know, I, we did leave my email address. If folks have um, any additional questions, you know, by, by all means, reach out. You know, it's going to be a long winter, and I love talking fishing and the bat and kill. So by all means, reach out, and we can uh, You want, you want to drop your email again then, uh, sure. Doug? For those? Uh, yeah. Sure. It's D as in Doug. So it's D-D-C Lions, L-Y-O-N-S. The numeral one at AOL.com. There you go, folks. Open invitation to get more information on the bat and kill. Uh, so uh, if you're out and about in the bat and kill area, um, get in contact with Doug, and I'm sure he'll have some more tips for you to, to fish the wonderful river. Well, hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. Uh, in the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, I think over 390 shows now, uh, which you can search by keyword or keyword phrase like the Battenfield River, Madison River, Tarpon Trout, Permit, whatever you want to uh, fish for or learn about. Uh, it's all there in the archive. Go ahead and explore. I know you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you discover there. And um, next broadcast will be on January 3rd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I interview George Daniel, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing evolution. George Daniel has been experimenting, innovating, and developing strategies and techniques since he started fly fishing. One thing he's discovered is that fly fishing doesn't stand still. It evolves. Join us to learn about the cutting-edge strategies for nymphing, dry fly, and streamer fishing that are being used today on the water. Equipment, fly patterns, rigs, casting are all fair game. So see you on that show. Be sure to add that upcoming show to your calendar on our homepage. Just uh, click on the Add to Calendar button below George's photograph, and you'll be all set and added to your calendar. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Lee's Ferry Anglers, the Ugly Bug Fly Shop, Enrico Puglisi Flies, and uh, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Whoop.